Jodcast, cooler than your average CMB satellite. With Megan Argo, Adam Avison, John Field, Melanie Jean, Melis Irfan, Libby Jones and Ian Morrison. The Jodcast, February 2012 edition. Hello and welcome to The Jodcast. I'm Adam Avison and with me this month we have Libby, Melanie and Mel. Hello. Hey. Hello. So I'm sure most of our listeners know that Stargazing Life happened this past week, and some of us were lucky enough to go down on the Wednesday to have a quick tour of the uh, studio and the uh, the mobile outdoor broadcasting unit called Obi-Wan, and then in small brackets, Kenobi, which was amazing <laughs> to look around. This huge truck that has these sections that sort of fold out and turns into a mobile studio. Um, I believe it's the biggest in Europe, right? Yeah, and if you crash it, it will just come back stronger than before. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. It was very cool because this truck normally does all the sports events and the Obi-Wan is actually had nothing to do with science, but this is like quite yeah. unusual to actually do live science broadcasting. That was very cool. And then we went to the uh, the set where they were doing these sort of back to earth shows and there's a picture that I'm hoping gets on the Jogcast website at some point with the uh, alternate reality stargazing live cast made up of Jogcasters. So there was myself, Jen, Libby and Liz. So jealous. Yeah. So jealous I was in there. <laughs> they actually ended up on the show uh, afterward, which yeah. is really cool. So so I wasn't on the show, but Libby, Liz, and Jen were. And I'm sure, well, we'll find out later in the show whether any of the Jogcast listeners spotted them. So uh, in the show this month, we talked to Stargazing Live extraordinaire Dr. Lucy Green, Dr. Paul Woods about sugar in space, and we find out what you can see in the February night sky. But first, before all of that, Here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month, January saw the 219th meeting of the American Astronomical Society, termed the Super Bowl of astrophysics events. January's highlights included dark matter, exoplanets, black hole burps, and star formation. The conference saw the unveiling of what is so far the largest dark matter map of the universe available. The map covers more than one billion light years. Dark matter itself is invisible, but the mapmakers, the Canada-France-Hawaii Telescope Lens Collaborations, use gravitational lensing to detect the location of dark matter clumps. Gravitational lensing is the bending of space-time by anything with mass, which dark matter has, which in turn causes light to bend around these etched-out regions of space-time. The light being bent, in the case of this map, was from 10 million distant galaxies. The map shows that large-scale dark matter is clumped into blobs, which are connected by thin filaments. The nature of the dark matter geometry can reveal some of its intrinsic properties, and so, with the help of this map, we're getting closer to shedding some light on the dark matter puzzle. For many years it has been commonly accepted that nothing can escape from the clutches of a black hole. However, evidence of a black hole burp was presented at this year's AAS meeting. Observations by NASA's Rossi X-ray Timing Explorer, and an array of radio telescopes known as the Very Long Baseline Array, witnessed a black hole releasing jets of plasma, in June 2009, these jets of ionized gas in turn push particles outward from the accretion disk of the black hole and send them off into space, escaping the clutches of the black hole. Bubbles of hot gas in space are believed to be the hub of medium-sized star formation, just like the kind of environment thought to have created the Sun some 5 billion years ago. One such modern local stellar nursery in the Large Magellanic Cloud is believed to contain many bubbles of hot gas. This is surprising since the Large Magellanic Cloud itself is mostly cold gas, with a mass millions of times larger than that of the Sun. 
However, within this cold gas live massive stars, which heat the gas around them, forming these hot bubbles. The bubbles are then pushed away from the massive stars via a hot stellar wind, similar to warm and cold fronts in our own Earth's weather. And finally, the ever-increasingly popular search for extrasolar planets has revealed a happy piece of news for all you alien enthusiasts. According to the Paris Institute of Astrophysics, your average star hosts around 1.6 planets. So, with an estimated 100 billion stars in the Milky Way, there could be around 160 billion possible environments we can search for new friends. It was also determined that the majority of these planets would be small and rock-like, very similar to the Earth, so we may even have a hope of recognising whatever or whoever we find. Thanks for that, Megan. So, Jen isn't having the most peaceful retirement because she's back already uh, with an interview with uh, Dr Lucy Green about the sun. I'm here with Dr Lucy Green from the Mallard Space Science Laboratory. Welcome back to the Jogcast. Oh, it's lovely to be back. So, can you tell us a little bit about what you've been working on? I think we last talked to you in 2007. That's right. So probably at that point in time, well, definitely, actually, I was working on uh, coronal mass ejections. So since then, I've been looking at um, observations of the source regions of coronal mass ejections on the sun. So these are the eruptions of magnetic field from the sun's atmosphere. And I've been trying to work out how much magnetic field are in these eruptions so that we can work out uh, why they erupt. So magnetic fields are something that we talk about a lot, but most of the time in astronomy they're not actually very well understood but in the sun we can understand them quite well we can yeah so we can we can make measurements of the magnetic field at the sun's surface which is um, the key to to the advances that have been made and um, in particular we can make maps of the magnetic field in sunspot regions so that's where most of the magnetic field which is actually ultimately coming from inside the sun um, in the sunspots is where this interior magnetic field has risen up and rises and bursts through the surface, forming big structures in the sun's atmosphere, which ultimately evolve and then erupt as a coronal mass ejection. So when people look at the sun, they see sunspots, we see coronal mass ejections and also solar flares. What's the difference between all these? Yeah, so they're all intimately tied together and it's hard to disentangle them but the sunspots themselves are the dark features on on the sun's surface and they're regions of concentrated magnetic field and because they're regions of concentrated magnetic field the gases there um, don't have the heat replenished very readily and and it cools down which hence the sunspots appear dark Um, and then solar flares and coronal mass ejections will happen in these sunspot regions solar flares are kind of like explosions in the sun's atmosphere where the gases get heated very rapidly to very high temperatures and they start to shine very brightly in x-rays, ultraviolet, uh, radio wavelengths. So solar flares are releases of energy low down in the sun's atmosphere. A coronal mass ejection is is an eruption of magnetic field and hot gas into the solar system. So to me, I I sort of conceptualise a solar flare as an explosion in the atmosphere but a coronal mass ejection is actually a bulk eruption of magnetic field and particles. And then so these coronal mass ejections are what then form the aurora on Earth? Yeah, it's definitely related. So the coronal mass ejections um, can travel out from the sun in any direction, and of course sometimes they will collide with the Earth. When they get to us, you can have an interaction with the magnetic field of the coronal mass ejection and the magnetic field of the Earth. 
And the Earth's magnetic field can become kind of energised and a series of currents get set up. And it's these currents, we think, that then accelerate particles which are trapped in the Earth's magnetic field. And so they get accelerated from high, um, high heights down towards and into the, sun, into, the, sorry, into the sun, into the Earth's upper atmosphere. And that's where they give up their energy and produce the northern light. So... So, yeah, ultimately the energy comes from the sun, but it's processes that happen in in the Earth's magnetosphere, in the Earth's magnetic field that produce the northern lights. And so there's been quite a lot of activity on the sun recently and on Twitter and things you can find out when coronal mass ejections have gone off. What kind of timescales are we talking about between a coronal mass ejection going off and the potential to see the northern lights? Yeah, so it's a really good question. So um, coronal mass ejections can travel with different speeds. So the slowest ones might go uh, maybe a few hundred kilometres a second. Still sounds very fast. (laughs) The fastest one's up to um, around 2,000 kilometres a second, which means they can take from, say, 18 hours to four days to get to us. So it is pretty hard (laughs) to predict when they're going to arrive. But we do forecast these and so you look at the observations from the sun try and work out what their velocity is what direction they're going in and then you can put that into a model and predict the arrival time and so and it's pretty good so last night we had a chrome mass ejection that left the sun on friday uh, today sunday and it was predicted to hit at midnight last night plus or minus seven hours and i think it arrived about five thirty this morning Can we talk a bit about the instruments that you use to study the sun? Are they mostly space satellites these days? Yeah, the instruments I use are all in space. And that's because it gives us, on the one hand, an uninterrupted view of the sun away from the effects of the Earth's atmosphere, but also it allows us to reach parts of the electromagnetic spectrum that you can't get on the Earth. So, for example, um, the ultraviolet line, X-ray radiation coming from the sun. So I I use a fleet of... Um, spacecraft actually yeah, I feel you know that there's a lot of technology available to us and uh, in particular I'm using the Solar Dynamics Observatory which is um, NASA's latest mission to study the sun and a Japanese mission called Hinaday which we have a telescope on board a spectrometer on board and between those two missions in particular we can see the sun's surface the sun's atmosphere we can take images of it but importantly with our telescope on Hinaday we can split the light coming from the sun into the wavelengths and do spectroscopy so we can look at what the composition of the gases is Uh, how fast the gases are moving and how dense they are, things like that. And so what kind of elements do you see? Oh, a range of elements. So the most abundant being hydrogen and helium, but then in particular... Um, iron is very important to us because the iron um, ions <laughs> give off light at a range of wavelengths and, um, and they emit very well in the, in the sun's atmosphere. So iron is important to us. And these spacecraft, are they close to Earth or are they close to the sun? These two in particular are in orbit around the Earth. So it's actually very important for, for the Solar Dynamics Observatory because the spacecraft takes so much data, it takes so many detailed images that it needs to be in constant contact with the ground station to, to relay um, its data. So, yeah, SDO, the Solar Dynamics Observatory, has a nice orbit where it can constantly send down the data to us. But there are other spacecraft in other orbits, and in particular what's exciting now is that we have... Uh, the Stereo spacecraft, another NASA mission, and they are in orbit around the sun, and they've moved apart over time, and they give us now, actually, a view of the far side of the sun. So from the Earth, we see the sun with Hinaday and, and Solar Dynamics Observatory, but yeah, Stereo are in orbit around the sun, and for the first time in humanity, we can see all of the, all of the sun's atmosphere now. 
Does the sun emit at all wavelengths, or are there any wavelengths that it's quieter? The sun is amazing at emitting across all wavelengths. So, yeah, ultimately you need to get all the parts of the spectrum together to study the sun. So, um, so radio invisible in ultraviolet x-rays and even gamma ray emission as well during events like the solar flares that we talked about well we're running out of battery so we should probably end (laughs) the interview there thank you very much for talking to me today it's a pleasure thanks for that jen and we must apologize for the noise but the uh, interview wasn't conducted in the most quiet surroundings so sorry for that Melanie managed to track down evolved jodcaster dr paul words and talk to him about the formation of sugar in space Hi, I'm at uh, University College London today and talking to famous jetcaster Dr. Paul Woods. Hi, Paul. Hi, Melanie. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. So I'm very intrigued when I asked you what you wanted to talk about today. And you told me, oh, I want to talk about the formation of sugar in space. Can you elaborate on that? Yes. So this is a very simple sugar. Um, it's not really the sugar that we know, you know, in terms of glucose or sucrose table sugar. Um, this is a very simple sugar called glycol aldehyde. Um, and it's pretty much the most simple sugar you can get. And it was detected, um, in space about 10 years ago now. And it was more recently detected, um, about three or four years ago in a star forming region. And so my work at the moment is trying to figure out how that sugar was formed in in the regions that we find it. What formed it in terms of like the objects? Is it just the stars? Um, yes, in in the galactic center, it was detected in a in a star forming region, a molecular cloud, sort of a proto star forming region. And um, the other object that we're more interested in is a is a more well known star forming region um, called G thirty one. And so this is um, where there are things called hot molecular cores. So these are regions that stars are just starting to form, Um, basically big, dense clumps of matter where the material is infalling, and when it gets to a certain density, um, we have the the fusion of hydrogen, and that's when our star begins its life. Okay, so how can a star form sugar? I'm, I'm baffled by the fact that it can make like complicated molecules. Yeah, so um, that's what we're trying to answer. <laughs> I'm not sure we have any definitive um, uh, response yet, but we've been looking into the possibilities. So we've known about molecules in space for, I don't know, like 70 or 80 years now. And usually they're very simple molecules. They're two or three or four atoms in size. But um, this sugar that we're talking about is... Um, eight atoms in size so it's it's two carbons two oxygens and four hydrogens and yeah that's pretty big and um we don't really know how these large complex molecules form we think um it's something to do with the environments that they're in um, and it's something to do with the dust grains that are in the interstellar medium so the dust grains in space give um a a surface for complex molecules to form on and then they're released back into the gas phase when they get warm enough so that's probably why we find them in these star-forming regions, because initially the regions are cold, and so the molecules in the gas phase can um, can freeze out onto the surface of these dust grains. And then as the star starts to form and, and the material around it starts to warm up, then these ices, we call them, um, become evaporated from the dust grains in, in the increasing temperatures. And so we see them, see these molecules in the gas phase. 
so the idea behind this project was to look into um, various different ways in this particular this particular sugar forms, and we don't we don't really have a good idea, mainly because this is a relatively new discovery, and the people who do all the the difficult chemistry work in the lab haven't really had time and the funding to go and do experiments in the lab to find out how you get these big molecules, or had time to do the the really tricky quantum mechanical calculations to find out how you get things like glycolaldehyde. Um, as an astrochemist, we've we've tried to put together some reactions that we think might be possible. And um, then we've looked at them all in competition to see um, which one is most feasible. Um, so we've basically we trawled the literature from the from the last ten years or so, and we look we've collected all the the possible formation mechanisms for glycolaldehyde, and then we stick them in a big computer program, really called a chemical model. Um, and this is uh, basically a, a big collection of chemical reactions that are suitable for the interstellar medium. So they have to they have to work at temperatures less than about 300 kelvin so less than about room temperature down to the the temperature of the interstellar medium which can be as low as 10 kelvin which is <coughs> minus 263 <laughs> degrees centigrade or something um and so uh, this this star forming region that we're interested in um we wanted to look at whether glycolaldehyde could form at the very very coldest temperatures so at 10 kelvin um and so we put together this network of chemical reactions, something like uh, six or seven thousand reactions, and um, uh, we basically let them run their course. And under the particular physical conditions of the interstellar medium, the, the density and the temperature, um, we see basically how much glycolaldehyde we can form and what is the most efficient way of of doing it. Apart from the fact that it's sugar, which yeah. again <laughs> amazes me. Why why do we care that there's sugar in space? Um, we care about large molecules in particular because um, they, you know, they are, well, the, the implication is that they go on to form even larger molecules, more complex molecules, maybe even uh, biologically relevant molecules that we can't see yet. Basically, we're limited um, um on the size of the molecules we see because the bigger the molecule generally the less abundant it is in space and so when it emits radiation it's very weak radiation that, that we can't really detect for the for the really big molecules um, and so um, we're interested in things like this because of the the links to life but also because it helps us to understand our universe a bit better as well and you talk about uh, detecting those molecules how do you detect them is it a specific a particular wavelength? Is it a particular instrument? Um, yes, generally we see molecules in space in the submillimeter regime. So that's um, wavelengths of a few hundred microns up to maybe two or three millimeters. Um, and uh, we see these with, with radio telescopes basically. Um, and these are dotted around all over the world. But we can detect the radiation from specific molecules because we know um, at what wavelengths these molecules emit. So this particular molecule, glycolaldehyde, was detected in the submillimeter regime, and we saw um, saw three or four lines of this uh, molecule. So it's a fairly um, fairly safe detection. Uh, really, we need about three or four lines to make sure we're looking at a, a specific molecule and we don't get it confused with something else that might emit at similar wavelengths. Okay. And um, what is the 
biggest molecule that has been detected? Like, is it something really complex or is it still something simple? Because you said that the sugar is like eight atoms or something like that. Yeah. So, so this is quite interesting, actually, because I think he had an interview on it recently with a guy called Jan Kami. Um, he has detected some molecules called fullerenes, and these are very large carbonaceous molecules so they're composed of he detected two different kinds one of which has 60 carbon atoms in a sort of soccer ball type shape and um, one of which has 70 carbon atoms so these are the biggest molecules that have been detected in space at the moment and they were only detected maybe two years ago um, but then there's a huge gulf there's really nothing until you get down to um, maybe molecules with 12 13 14 atoms so there's a there's a huge range of us a huge range of sort of size of molecules to be to be filled in we know a lot about the smaller molecules four or five atoms and we know uh, a reasonable amount about the the slightly bigger molecules of you know size of sugar or um maybe 13 or 14 atoms but then there's nothing up until these huge fullerenes form and we don't really know how they form either so there's a lot of work still to be done i have to say <laughs> In all, all those molecules, are they formed only with, in stars or is there any other ways that, that those molecules could form? Most of the, the really stable molecules um, are either formed in, in stars or in, um, or in the interstellar medium, so in, in big clouds of, of gas and dust. Um, but um, there are some molecules that are only formed in sort of extreme conditions where there are... Um, a lot of x-rays or very intense ultraviolet radiation from from young stars perhaps or from supernovae so the measurement of all those uh, big molecules is it possible only in our galaxy or can you do it in in other galaxies so at the moment i think it's probably only possible in our galaxy to detect some some of these big molecules in other galaxies would be um quite challenging mainly because the the emission um, from these molecules is is intrinsically weak anyway, um, and because these other galaxies are so far away, that just dilutes the radiation that we that we receive. But um, I have been doing some other work that that has been looking at um, some nearby galaxies, the Magellanic Clouds, and there we find that um, in particular for carbonaceous molecules, molecules with a lot of carbon, um, they're very much more abundant in these Magellanic Clouds than they are in our galaxy. So even though it might be difficult to get the oxygen that we need for, say, glycolaldehyde in another galaxy, we can get um, some very big hydrocarbons um, in, in the Magellanic Clouds. So. Do you think that the formation of this molecule might be different depending on the type of galaxy? Um, I don't think so. Um, in, in general, I think basically wherever you have um, a reasonably dense environment and reasonably cool temperatures, you'll get the formation of these um, molecules. And because these these conditions are reasonably ubiquitous in our galaxy, we have to assume that they're the same in other galaxies as well. And so um, I think in terms of the chemistry in general, I think we can expect to see similar sorts of stuff in other galaxies that we get in, in our galaxies. The, the, I guess the main thing is the difference in metallicity, so the amount of metals that there are to use in our galaxy. Like metals like iron? 
Yeah, metals, when astronomers or when astrochemists talk about metals, they mean anything heavier than than helium, really. So hydrogen and then helium and then everything else is a metal, even though, you know, carbon and nitrogen aren't really metals. But we, we just call them metals. So in other galaxies, you get you get a different metallicity to our galaxy. Um, that can mean more metals or it can mean a lot less metals. So um, that, that can certainly affect the chemistry a lot. Um, so, yeah, we'll see. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Paul. Thank you. And uh, bye. Thanks for that, Melanie. You're welcome. And now we get to the part of the show where we fit in everything else we wanted to talk about. It's the odds and ends section. Okay, first we uh, had the the sad news. Well, it's not really sad news, but uh, one of the instruments on the Planck satellite uh, telescope, which uh, had been looking at the cosmic microwave background, has died. Uh, It has warmed up. Uh, above the temperature at which it can work, uh, hence the witty comment that we're way cooler than it is. Although I'm still kind of wondering about that, because it was cooled down to 0.1 degree above absolute zero, which is minus 273 degrees Celsius. Are we really cooler than minus 273 degrees Celsius? Not right now. 0.1. It says minus 273.1, I think, absolute zero. So we, we could be in that... If anyone has a device to measure the coolness of the Judcast, they could send it in to us. Yes. Anyway, the uh, the instrument or the telescope has actually been in space for over two and a half years now. It was planned to work for only a year, so two and a half is quite amazing. And there's still one other instrument, a low frequency instrument, which doesn't need to be cooled down as much, which is still going on. Um, why does uh, it need to be cooled so much? It's because when you're looking at the uh, the microwave background, it's uh, it's very long wavelengths, and so you're looking at very cool temperature. So if you want to detect those cool temperature, like two, three Kelvin, which is minus two hundred and seventy degrees Celsius, you need to be cooler than that, else you won't detect it. So that's why it needed to be cooled. And then I take it all the coolant is now evaporated, and which is why it's warming up. Yeah, it's it's gone. Helium. Yeah. <clears throat> At the 219th American Astronomical Society meeting, astronomers have uh, weighed in on the Milky Way's true colour, as the BBC reports. Um, is it bright hot pink or it's black? Not, it's not. It, it can't be black. We can see stars in the sky. Come on. <laughs> and it's not. Unfortunately, it's not pink, unless uh, unless I'm reading this description wrong. So I'd just like to read the description that one of the team gave. Professor Newman told the BBC News, the best description I can give would be that if you looked at a new spring snow, which has a fine grain size, about half an hour after dawn or half an hour before sunset, you'd see the same spectrum of light that an alien astronomer in another galaxy would see when looking at the Milky Way. It still sounds pink to me. It sounds well, silver. It, <laughs> it depends when you get up. I, 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 I imagine that being a sort of off-white yellowy colour. See, I imagine that as glossy white, just... <laughs> the, descri- the amount of effort this man has put into his description and we're stuck between pink, white, off-white, yellow <laughs> yeah I, th- I think this this article or maybe the uh, the, 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 uh, really, the proper data at least does have a little image of the colour that it is which would be very handy for imagining this um, but this does tell us something about our, uh, our Milky Way um, in that it's sort of Middle of the road, it's it's not brand new, and the star formation rate is declining, so we're, we're, we're neither red nor blue. The Astronomy Photographer of the Year competition 2012 is now open. So if you've been out photographing the night sky, and would like to submit um, a photograph to this year's competition, we will link to the entry details in the show notes. 
And last year, I had a look at the entries, the winners of the several categories at the Greenwich Observatory, where they displayed them all, and people could buy a print of these amazing pictures. And the winner was a picture of Jupiter with two of its moons in the same shot, which was taken uh, using a video recorder through a telescope. If you want to go out and photograph the night sky, and I'm sure on our Flickr group there's lots of amazing images, which would be very cool to be entered into the Astrophoto of the Year competition, please do so, and also let us know how you get on. On another note, the Phobos-Grunt satellite has finally splash-landed. Last year was quite a lot of satellites having uncontrolled re-entries into Earth, so hopefully this will be the last long one for a long time without us knowing where it's going to land. And luckily enough, it didn't actually hit anyone on the ground, which is very, very good. So, I guess it's back. It's died a death. It didn't get to go to Mars, but it came back to Earth a bit less safely. (laughs) (laughs) And now a press release from the International Telecommunication Union. And and this is about uh, the leap second. So, you know, there are many ways of sort of defining time. You can um, define time through the Earth's rotation, or you can use atomic clocks. And uh, the leap second is a construct that we've been sort of using since 1972. And it's to make up for the difference between um, the universal time from the rotation of the Earth and the time we use um, from uh, atomic clocks. And so basically, uh, they add in a leap second to uh, to compensate for the difference between these two times. But uh, the Radio Communication Assembly are considering whether we need to have this leap second or whether we can just use a continuous time standard. They were going to make a decision. Basically, they've deferred the decision, which is good, because I think they've missed a trick here, and I think they have something else to consider. And that instead of the leap second, and instead of a universal time, how about we just save up all the excess seconds that we're, we're missing out here? And then once every sort of, I don't know, 4,000 years, the people in that particular millennia can celebrate by having a three-day weekend. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like the time off, but it does play havoc with certain bits of software, which would be, I guess, annoying in the short term if you're not going to be born in those 4,000, that that year where you get the day off. Can can, can we, like, catch up on... uh... The past four thousand years, for example, and getting oh, yeah. well, that's true. Just... I think we're owed many days already <laughs> as it is. Um, I mean, they're still considering uh, what to do, and I'd just like to throw that idea in there as a food for thought. If you don't want to miss a second of astronomy, here's Ian Morrison to tell us what you can see in the northern night sky this month. The night sky, February two thousand twelve. Well, the evening sky in February presents perhaps one of the most beautiful skyscapes that we have. Centre stage, of course, is the constellation of Orion, with its bright stars, Betelgeuse to the upper left and Rigel down to the lower right. Below the central star of the three stars that make up its belt is the Sword of Orion, which contains M42, the Orion Nebula, and even with binoculars you can see that as a little hazy glow, so do have a look for that. Down to the lower left of those three stars, if you follow them down, you come to the brightest star in the northern hemisphere, Sirius. Fairly low at times, and the effects of the atmosphere causes it to twinkle, and also you get little shafts of colour, the refraction of the atmosphere. And we sometimes get rung up saying we've seen this UFO in the south. Going up to the right from those three stars, you come first to Taurus the Bull, and the red star Aldebaran, which is the eye of the bull, is actually halfway between ourselves and the Hyades cluster that makes a sort of a V, which you can imagine as the head of the bull. Carrying on a bit further, you come to that lovely cluster of stars called the Pleiades, sometimes called the Seven Sisters, although, in my view, you either see five 
or perhaps you see nine, and perhaps the other two are mum and dad. Up to the left of Orion are the heavenly twins, Castor and Pollux in Gemini, and then going up to the right towards the zenith, you've got our Riga with its bright star Capella. The Milky Way runs along the base of the twins, up through Auriga, and there are quite a number of nice little open clusters of stars that one can see there. As the evening draws on, Leo the Lion is rising over in the east. Below that, of course, as we shall see, is the planet Mars. So, a lovely area of sky to look at. Well, let's have a look at the planets this month. And we've actually got pretty well every one that one can normally see. Jupiter, although it's perhaps just a bit past its best, is still beautifully seen in the evening sky. It transits due south about half an hour after sunset at the beginning of February. In fact, on the 1st of February, it'll be 50 degrees above the southern horizon, really nice and high, shining at magnitude minus 2.4. It's in Aries, very close to its boundary with Pisces. The angular size is still 38.7 arc seconds, and that actually means that a small telescope will easily show the equatorial bands. There's some little dark markings in the northern one. They're called barges. And you may see what's called the Great Red Spot, but to me it looks a rather pale yellow-orange. And one of the highlights that you find in the Night Sky page is where I list the times and the dates when the Great Red Spot is transiting, basically directly facing us, so you can have a good chance to find it. Well, what about Saturn? Well, it's becoming more prominent. At the beginning of the month, it rises at midnight and can be seen due south at about 5.30am before dawn. But in contrast to Jupiter, its elevation then will only be 31 degrees. And the problem is, whereas Jupiter is getting to the top or the highest part of the ecliptic in declination, so it's high in the sky when we see it south, Saturn is, I'm afraid, moving towards the lowest part of the ecliptic, so it will not be so high. Its magnitude plus 0.6, increasing somewhat to 0.5 during the month. One nice thing, however, is that the rings are now opening out. At its last apparition, they were basically sort of edge-on to us, so you couldn't see them very well. They're now about 15 degrees to the line of sight, and therefore, if you do have a fairly steady night when the, what's called the seeing is good, you should easily see what is called Cassini's division between two of the rings, and you may just pick out what's called Enker's division in the outer ring, and also a rather elusive sea or perhaps crepe ring, which lies between the brighter rings and the planet's surface. It's a lovely thing to see, and that will be coming better and better in the next few months. Mercury actually passes behind the Sun on February the 6th. That's called superior conjunction, so we're not going to see it for a bit. But it does appear in the sky towards the very end of the month in the southwest after sunset at magnitude minus 1.1. It's actually moving towards us quite quickly, so the angular size of about six arc seconds is increasing. And I'll come back to Mercury in one of the highlights. Well, two to go. Mars. Well, Mars, as I said, is below Leo, and it's actually now moving retrograde. That means it's sort of moving westwards in the sky rather than eastwards. 
I just happened to pick up Russell Grant doing some astrology on Radio 2, I think it was, the other day. And he kept on telling people not to make any decisions because Mars was their planet and it was moving retrograde. I'm not totally convinced I believe that. Anyway, by the month's end, it rises at about 6pm and will have an elevation of 50 degrees below the lion's hindquarters later that night. The angular size is getting bigger, up to 14 arc seconds by the end of the month. And that means you can now, with a small telescope, see features on its salmon pink disc. The most obvious feature is the V-shape of Sirtis Major and the North Polar Cap, which is now tilted towards us. So that's going to be a prime planet to observe next month and the month after. And finally, Venus. You may well have spotted Venus in the southwestern sky after sunset. It's gradually increasing its angular separation from the sun. On the 1st of February, it's 39 degrees away, and that means it will have an elevation of about 30 degrees at sunset, and it's certainly becoming much more obvious than it has been. It continues to draw away from the sun, so by the end of the month, it's 44 degrees away at angle, and it will be a further 7 degrees higher above the horizon. So really, after sunset, if it's clear, you really cannot miss it. As it gets bigger, because it's getting closer to us, the angular size goes from 15 to 18 arc seconds. At the same time, the percentage that's illuminated that we see is falling from about 74 to 64%. And that means the brightness stays remarkably constant at about magnitude minus 4.1 throughout the month. So quite a lot to see, and that's every one of the planets that we normally talk about visible at least at some point during the month. Well, there aren't a lot of great highlights, I have to say, in February. There aren't any nice meteor showers, for example. But perhaps at the beginning and the end, there are two quite nice things to see. Rising in the east before dawn, say at about 6.30am, you will see the bright star Vega in the constellation of Laro. If you move up and a little to the west, that's to the right towards the south, you will see the constellation of Hercules, whose four brightest stars make up the keystone. Now, as it rises, we actually see it on its side. So the top of the keystone is up to the left. If you look with binoculars above the line joining the two bright stars at the top, as we see it, to the upper right, shall we say, you should pick out about two-thirds of the way from the rightmost up to the left, the globular cluster M13. These are spherical balls of stars, perhaps a million stars, very old, almost micro-galaxies that were formed at about the time our own galaxy was formed. It's the best that we see in the Northern Hemisphere. To the left of the keystone, when seen at this angle, is another globular cluster called M92. It's half of magnitude fainter at 6.5 as opposed to magnitude 6. And it gets a bit overlooked because it's pretty close to M13. The reason I mention these two is that during February, running quite close to M92, and at its closest on the 3rd of February, is Comet Garad. And the Earth is actually moving towards it at the moment, and its magnitude is expected to be about magnitude 7 this month. So although you won't see it with your unaided eye, you should easily pick it up with binoculars. As I said, on February the 3rd, you should see it quite close to the globular cluster M92.
It reminds me of a day way back in 1990. It was August the 19th. I was camping in the south of France with my family. It was a lovely clear night and I was showing some of the other campers what we could see in the sky. And Pegasus was fairly high up. Now, just above the head of Pegasus, the winged horse, is another globular cluster called M15. And I suggested to the people who were with me that we might actually have a look at that. And I put my binoculars on it, and I was amazed to see how bright it was and how clear. Well, of course, we were in southern Brittany. The skies are very dark. It was higher up in the sky than we see it from northern England, where I live. So I thought perhaps that was the reason. But it wasn't until I got home that I saw a lovely picture of Comet Levy at about magnitude 3, just within a cat's whisker of the globular cluster M15. So, in fact, I'd shown them a comet, but just didn't know what it was. Well, on February the 9th, at about 9pm in the evening, I mentioned Mars lying beneath Leo. Well, there's, in fact, a moon just two days after full, very close to it. So a nice little sort of grouping there of the moon and Mars. On February the 12th, before dawn... Saturn is visible with spiker and a waning moon making a virtually straight line in the sky. So if you get up early, another nice thing to see. But perhaps the best thing to see is on February 25th because then in the evening sky we will have Jupiter, Venus and Mercury along with a thin crescent moon. Mercury is quite low down so you may have a problem seeing that but even so Venus very close to the moon and Jupiter up to the left should look very nice. And when you're actually looking at a very new moon, see if you can spot the Earth shine, sometimes called the old moon in the new moon's arms. That's a nice thing to see. In the Night Sky page, I've been trying to indicate one thing you might look at in the moon each month. And this month I chose the Hyginus Rill. At the centre is a crater. Now, virtually all the craters on the Moon, we believe, are impact craters. They have raised rings, but this one doesn't. And we think it's the result of volcanism below, a pyroclastic explosion, basically made a cavity about 11 kilometres across, and the surface just slumped down into it. So, quite a nice thing to look at in Mare Vaporum, and i show you where it is on the Night Sky page. So all the very best for this month. It's a lovely time to observe the sky. Hopefully it won't be too cold. Enjoy yourselves. Thanks for that, Ian. And for the Southern Night Sky, here's John Field. Kia ora and welcome to the February Jodcast coming from Wellington, New Zealand. February finds the planets Venus and Jupiter still in our evening sky. Venus is now very low down in the west, setting soon after sunset, whilst Jupiter is in the northwest and will set before midnight. Mars will rise in the northeast after twilight, appearing as a bright reddish-coloured star. Using a pair of 7x50 or 10x50 binoculars is a great way to look and discover a large number of objects in the night sky. The wide field of view is great for observing star clusters, nebulae and well-separated double stars. There are also a number of galaxies that can be found in binoculars. You can even use them for daytime viewing as they will show an upright image compared to a telescope. Binoculars are lighter and can be used either with a tripod using an adapter or by holding them in your hands. Hand-holding binoculars though can be tiring on the arms and neck as well as deliver a shaky image. One way to overcome this is by using an adjustable sun lounger. Point the sun lounger in the direction that you wish to observe and adjust the angle of the lounger so your head is supported. 
This means that you will need only to point the binoculars in the direction of your objects. The weight of the binoculars is supported by the sun lounger. A pillow behind the neck will add to the comfort. And our evening sky, Sirius, the brightest star in our night sky, sits high in the north. It marks the front of the constellation of Canis Major, the large dog. Lower down towards the northern horizon, we find Procyon, the eighth brightest star in the night sky, and the brightest star in the constellation of Canis Major, the little dog. These two dogs are the faithful hunting companions of Orion, our summer constellation. Sitting between the two dogs is the constellation of Monoceros, the unicorn. This constellation honours a mythical horned horse. There is no myth or story associated with this constellation, as it was introduced in the 1500s. Although the shape of the horse may be difficult to discern, there are a great number of sights in the horse worth tracking down. Alpha Monoceros is a magnitude 3.9 orange star. In 1781, William Herschel discovered that Beta Monoceros is a beautiful white triple star, describing it as one of the most beautiful sights in the heavens. Small telescopes should easily separate the three components of magnitude 4.5, 5.2 and 5.6 on a good night. They form a curving arc of blue-white stars, the faintest two being closest together. Gamma Monoceros is a blue-white star and has a wide, unrelated, unaided eye companion of magnitude 5.5. Epsilon Monoceros is an easy double star for small telescopes. It consists of a yellow and blue components of magnitude 4.3 and 6. Sitting on the edge of the Milky Way, Monoceros has a large number of star clusters visible. A further way along the line stretch from Sirius to Procyon is a large, splendid open cluster of about 100 stars, visible in binoculars and known as M50. Many of the stars in the cluster are pairs, triplets and in small groups. A bright orange star can be found close to the centre of the group. To the northeast of Beta is NGC 2232, a scattered irregular open cluster surrounding the fifth magnitude blue-white star 10 Monoceros. Perhaps the most famous star cluster of Monoceros is NGC 2244, which is a bright scattered cluster around which is a large faint band of luminosity known as the Rosette Nebula, NGC 2237-46. The cluster is visible in binoculars or small telescopes and forms a rectangular shape. Large apertures or an O3 filter are needed to easily see the Rosette Nebula. NGC 2261 is a fan-shaped nebula known as Hubble's Variable Nebula and a target for larger telescopes. It is a variable star at the apex. Changes in its appearance have been observed for over 100 years. These are partly caused by the variability of the star, which varies in brightness from magnitudes 9.5 to 12. NGC 2301 is a bright open cluster in a beautiful field and is well suited for binoculars or small telescopes. There is an orange star in the central region. Another interesting target is NGC 2264 which consists of a star cluster and a nebula. The cluster is visible in binoculars or small telescopes. It contains about 20 members including a fifth magnitude star, an intensely blue-white star that is slightly variable with a close companion. This cluster is sometimes called the Christmas tree cluster due to its resemblance to the aforementioned tree. At the apex of the tree there is a nebula known as the Cone Nebula. Its name comes from its conical shape. Unfortunately, a large telescope and dark skies are needed to observe this. Monoceros is home to one of the most massive binary star systems known. The sixth magnitude star known as Plasquette Star is a spectroscopic binary with an estimated mass of 100 times that of our Sun. Another faint object for larger telescopes is V838 Monoceros, a variable star first observed in 2002. This star underwent two periods of brightening, which is highly unusual. The star has an expanding light echo. Light is being reflected from structures inside a cloud of interstellar dust and gas. 
At 15th magnitude, this is a very faint object to find. Images though from the Hubble Space Telescope reveal a beautiful interplay of light and dust. Most stars undergo some type of variability in brightness. This may be due to orbiting planets or stars crossing in front of the star. This will make the star dim and brighten on a regular basis. Beta Persei, Algol the Demon, is one of the most celebrated variable stars in the sky. It is a system of two close stars that periodically eclipse each other every 2.8 days. The star's apparent brightness lowers from magnitude 2.2 to 3.5 for a period of 10 hours before returning to maximum. Algol when visible is low on our northern horizon. But for those further north, it is a well worthwhile target. Other variable stars undergo a change in brightness due to internal processes, making a star swell and change in brightness and colour before cooling and then the star returns to its original brightness and colour. These types of changes are normally associated with older and giant stars in the final stages of their lives. Betelgeuse and Orion is an example of this type of star that varies in brightness from 0.2 to 1.2, the most of any first magnitude star. Another type of variable is associated with young stars that are forming and undergoing irregular brightening. VH38 may fall into this category, but there are still many questions to be answered about this star. Coming to our southern sky, we find Crux about halfway up our southeastern sky. This small but distinct constellation is well known in the southern hemisphere. Near to Crux is a group of four stars that forms the constellation of Musca the Fly. Musca is circumpolar from New Zealand, but is best viewed from February to October when it is high in our evening sky. Originally, this small constellation was called Aphis the Bee, but it was redesignated in 1752 to Musca Australis, the southern fly. Since then, the Australis has been dropped, leaving this perplexed bee as a fly. Part of the Colsec nebula from nearby Crux strays into Musca. The fly has two globular clusters and a planetary nebula well worth tracking down along with some interesting stars. Alpha Muscae shines at magnitude 2.7 and is about 300 light years away. It is over 4,000 times brighter than our star the Sun and has a surface temperature of about 22,000 degrees Celsius. The majority of the star's energy is radiated away as ultraviolet radiation. Beta Muscae is a double star that can be split in a 15 centimetre or greater telescope. Another double is Theta Muscae in which the brightest star is a Wolf Ray star. A Wolf Ray star is a very hot star that appears to be ejecting gas. Near to Gamma Muscae is the 8th magnitude globular cluster NGC 4372. A 6th magnitude star beside the cluster will help you to find it. Beside Delta Muscae is the 7th magnitude globular cluster NGC 4833. NGC 5189 is a 10th magnitude planetary nebula discovered by John Herschel in 1835 and he described it as a very strange object. Its appearance in a beautiful starry field is strongly reminiscent of that of the sparred spiral galaxy, or the letter S, leading to its popular name, the spiral planetary. In early February, there are two meteor showers active near the two pointer stars. Called the centaurids, they have been known to produce fireballs up to magnitude minus three, but the majority will be much fainter. This shower on average produces five meteors per hour, but increases of up to 25 have occurred. Unfortunately, the peak occurs one day after full moon, and this will mean that the fainter meteors will be washed out. Remember to check out the bright northern constellations of Orion, Taurus and Gemini, as they will soon begin their gentle slide into the twilight sky. The Milky Way runs almost north-south in the evening with the constellation of Carina and the bright star Canopus overhead. This region is well worth viewing through binoculars, for there are many star clusters and nebulae to be found. From the team here at Carter Observatory, wish you clear skies and great stargazing. Thanks for that, John.
Now we come on to one of my favourite parts of the show, the feedback section. And first off, we've got some actual post. Craig Bernstein writes from his holiday at Solitude Mountain Resort to tell us he's been listening to the Jogcast on the slopes. So, um, I wonder what it's like to listen to the Jogcast hurtling down the hill with two planks of wood strapped to your feet. But I'm sure it's uh, very enjoyable. So thanks for that, Greg. It's for when you fall and you can't get back up. At least you have something to listen to. Yes. <laughs> and you could get an excellent view of a clear night sky lying flat on your back. What <laughs> <laughs> well, if you get distracted by an interview or someone telling stuff and you go, oh, some really interesting science, and suddenly you, you're going down a ski jump or something. You're like, oh, no, what happens? Uh, well, then cool. you write about, uh, about it to us yeah, on the forum. Yeah, if you, do, if you did accidentally hurtle down a ski jump whilst listening to the Jogcast uh, after you wrote us off your first postcard, please let us know. We also got an email from Christoph Cranville, uh, which uh, tells us that he catches a distant glimpse of the Lovell Telescope every day on his way to work. It's always a thrill if it happens while he's listening to the Jodcast, and I'm very jealous. I wish I could see, you know, the Lovell every day on my way to work. But well, you do see it once a week when you're standing right next to it. When you True, do I, do, I do go work. Add yes. once a week, and then I have more than a glimpse. But what about the other four days? I do get very excited every time I go down to Jodrell. Just oh. that that bit where you come round one, one of the particular roads, and it's just in front of you. It's like, I know. Oh. I get. I start like jumping on my seat. <laughs> well, our favourite game is spot the uh, telescope, and it's the first one to say now and, and cheer <laughs> while you see it. And uh, on Facebook, we have a message from Shankar Shanky, who says, Hi, I love to hear Jodcast every month. It's got all the stuff I need to know in a month regard- um, regarding astronomy. And thanks a lot for the interviews with many professors. It really helped me understand space missions like Herschel and celestial objects like black holes. So that's awesome. And um, another message from Michael Jenkins, who says, Great show, and I like the new segment just as it is. And could we have a word of a month segment on pronunciation? For instance, how do you say Oort Cloud or Booties? Yes, Booties, Constellation. And is Beetlejuice really correct, as Ford Prefect would have us believe? And yes, yes, it has been empirically proven that everything written in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is fact. So. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think a, 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 a section on pronunciation each month wouldn't be the best idea, because we don't really know ourselves. There's so many different ways astronomers pronounce stuff. On Twitter... Uh, there was a game going on during Stargazing Live, which was spotting a jogcaster in the audience. And Billcat2 says, cool, found all four jogcasters, while the rest of the UK was planet hunting, finding exos. I think finding uh, more planets would be a bit cooler than spotting jogcasters in the audience, but... And, and there were five jogcasters in the audience. Well... Well, four in the audience, one oh, right. taking part, right? That prompted Stuart to reply, perhaps you get a jogcaster named after you. Yeah, so officially we are renaming Libby Bilkek 2B. <laughs> no, I'm <Yep>. not. <laughs> Official. All in favour. Aye. Aye. I've been outvoted. <laughs> so if you want to get in touch with the show, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On the forum at forum.jodcast.net. At Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget you can send us real life actual post and the address is on the website. Well, that about wraps it up for today. All that's left to do is uh, thank the interviewees, uh, Dr. Lucy Green and Dr. Paul Woods. The editors were Melanie Jond, Megan Argo, me, Claire Bretherton and Dan Thornton. And the producers were Libby Jones and Mark Perver.
Until next time, jog on. on.